The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. From the very beginning of his public ministry, Jesus has been calling people to his kingdom. His kingdom is used synonymously, the word of the kingdom is used synonymously with the gospel or the truth. And Jesus has used many vivid pictures to help people realize their need to enter his kingdom. He said you need to enter by being born again or by being poor in spirit or by coming as a child or by knowing God as your father or as he first said it, by repenting and believing. It's important to grasp that Jesus is not trying to build his kingdom by force in the way human kingdoms are built, but instead he's trying to rescue everyone outside of his kingdom because those who remain outside his kingdom will face the full condemnation for the rejection of God and his heavenly kingdom. As Jesus is inviting people to enter his kingdom urgently, some respond. They repent, they believe, they're poor in spirit, they come as a child and they know God as Father. But many do not. And so in Matthew 13, for the very first time in the gospel, the word parable is used. Jesus now speaks in parables to vividly place his listeners at a point of personal decision. I wanna make sure you understand this morning. Jesus is talking to you and he's talking about you, if you have ears to hear. In every one of these parables, he's talking to you, and he's talking about you, if you have ears to hear. Last Sunday, we went over the foundational parable, the parable of the soils. In that parable, Jesus tells us about four different types of response to the truth when the seed is given, and then he ends with this sobering phrase, let he who have ears to hear, let him hear, meaning that the kingdom's truth must be received by truly hearing and understanding. Now, he's going to give more parables that build on this foundational parable. Would you look in verse 34 of Matthew chapter 13? All these things Jesus said to the crowd in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Everything in Matthew 13 is a parable. Parables are extended metaphors to get across a big point. In other words, when you read a parable, don't make the mistake some very well-paid scholars make (laughs) where they try to imagine some creative detail about every single particular. That is not how parables work. Parables make a major point, and Jesus explains what the reference in the parable mean. We don't need to come up with our own creative explanations. Parables, though, do something very important. They make a point indirectly, and then they drill down and make a point personally. Here are two examples in the Bible. Nathan the prophet goes to David and tells him a parable about a man who owned only one sheep, which he cherished, versus a man who owned countless, which he cared for indifferently. And yet the man stole the one, and Nathan says to David, you are the man. Now, Jesus gives a profitable, a parable to Simon the Pharisee. Perhaps you remember this one. It's from Luke 7. Jesus is over Simon's house when a woman known for immoral character washes Jesus' feet and anoints him. Jesus, perceiving that Simon is sinfully thinking of himself more higher than he ought, 
tells him a parable about two people who owed large amounts of debt, but the one person's debt was exponentially higher. At the end, Jesus says, which of these two has the greater debt? Which of these two will love more? And Simon says, well, whoever had the greater debt will love more. And Jesus says, you've perceived rightly, but Jesus is talking about Simon, not the woman with the well-known immoral character. See, the parable has an indirect route, but then it drills precisely to the listener. Now, Jesus will do the same thing to you and I this morning. In these parables, he'll tell vivid stories that bring up a picture, but that is meant to drill down to you personally. In fact, in these parables, all of them begin with the kingdom of heaven is like, meaning that the kingdom of heaven is at stake for you and I in this morning's sermon. So in these parables, let us have ears to hear. And the first parable was read for us by our brother, verses 24 through 30. We'll pick up in Jesus' explanation in verse 36. And this parable is about the final destination for everyone in the world, and that, of course, includes you and I. Verse 36. Then he left the crowds, Jesus, and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Verse 37. Jesus answered, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now let me give you an insight that will help you interpret the Bible well. When you're reading the Bible, do not mix metaphors. Don't confuse the parables. In the first parable, the sower is anyone sharing the truth. In this parable, the sower is the son of man. In the first parable, the seed is the message. In this parable, the seed are the sons of the kingdom or the sons of evil. You see, you can't conflate the two. They each have differences, though they use the same imagery. Now verse 38. The field is the world. And the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. Let me point out in verse 38, the field is the world, not the church. Many people read this parable and say, oh, he's talking about the church, and that means in the church there'll be wheat and there'll be weeds. No, the Bible says to excommunicate the weeds from the church, actually. The the field is not the church. The field is the world. In the world, there will be both wheat and weeds. Sons of the kingdom and sons of the evil one. There should not be in the church, but in the world, there will. So verse 39. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil, and the harvest notice is the end of the age. That's why I've titled number one that this is the parable of the final destination for everyone in the world at the end of the age. At the end of the age, when the harvest is taken, everyone in the world will have a final destination. Now let me pause to uh, answer an objection often given against Christianity. Often people will say about Christianity, if there's a good God, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And there are many answers we could give from the Bible. Here's one for you today that you can add to your understanding. Jesus says that in order to pull out the weeds, it also takes up the wheat. In other words, in order to eliminate any evil, all people would have to be removed from the world. So why is there evil and suffering in the world? Because people are here. And if you want evil and suffering to instantly cease, you want all people to lose the opportunity to repent, which is why God is waiting, you see? Evil and suffering exist because God is forbearing 
and he's giving opportunity to repent. But the harvest will come. And when the harvest comes, all people will be given their final destination. So look now in verse 40. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So what is the final destination for everyone in the world? There are only two. You are either kept eternally in the kingdom or you are condemned eternally in the fiery furnace. Let me show you from Jesus' words. Look in verse 30 when he first gave the parable. At the harvest time, the end of the world, the weeds are bound in bundles to be burned, but the wheat is gathered into the barn. As we saw in verse 40, jumping 10 verses later, the weeds are gathered and burned with fire. Everyone in the kingdom who is a sinner and a lawbreaker is called out. In verse 42, they are thrown into a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in verse 43, the righteous shine like the sun. Now this is not the only parable Jesus gives about the end of the age for every person's final destination. So look down in verse 47. As Jesus gives a second parable about what happens to every human when their life is over here. Verse 47, again the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew to shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers to be kept, but threw away the bad. Verse 49, so it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous, verse 50, and throw the evil into the fiery furnace. Does this sound familiar? In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus is now bluntly, unapologetically telling us the final destination for everyone in the world. But it perhaps feels strange or uncomfortable to you because we almost never speak this way. When we talk about hell, we normally apply it to a struggle we're having or a hard week we've had. We use nothing close to the sort of imagery that Jesus is using to actually describe it. In 2003, Americans were polled and they were asked how many of them think they'll go to heaven when they die. And 64% of our country said they would go to heaven when they die. Do you know how many said they thought they would go to hell when they die? Less than 1%. So almost no one in America believes they're going to hell, though Jesus clearly tells us that the final destination at the end of the age will be one or the other and many will not be kept in the kingdom. Did you notice that Jesus three times said the harvest is the end? Do you know what that means? That means that after life, judgment is final. Hebrews 9.27 says this, it's appointed unto a man once to die, and then after this, judgment. And verse 28 says that Christ will not deal with sin a second time. 
You see, there's no such thing as purgatory. It's not in the Bible anywhere. There's no such thing as a second chance after life. There's also no such thing as annihilation. The belief that when you die, you simply cease to exist. No, everyone will exist for eternity future, either kept in the kingdom or condemned in the fiery furnace, and the harvest could happen at any moment. Now this morning, you may be very offended. How dare Pastor Josh talk about hell? (laughs) But this morning, I'm simply sharing with you the words of our Lord Jesus. And Jesus spoke more about hell than any prophet or any teacher in the Bible, even if you combine all their teachings. So why did Jesus speak more about hell than anyone else? Let me give you a few answers. First, to lovingly warn us. Many scholars and commentators, when they come to these passages about hell, they'll say something like this. Well, surely these are just metaphorical descriptions. Let me share some of Jesus' descriptions. He calls hell outer darkness. He calls it a place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. He calls it a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you think the reality is better than that? These are descriptions to show us soberly how serious life apart from Jesus Christ is for eternity. Jesus tells us to lovingly warn us. Also, Jesus tells us, so that we will grasp that sin separates us from God and all of his graces, to some extent in this life, but to the full extent in eternal life. See, sin has an isolating effect. When we love and serve ourselves, we distance ourselves from others and ultimately from God. J.I. Packer wrote it well when he said, scripture sees hell hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose, either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. See, why did Jesus talk more about hell than anything else? Because hell warns us of the future we face. Hell is when we push ourselves away from others in our own sinful desire. Have you ever seen a child kick their mom in the shins and then run the other way? At that moment, they don't want to be with you. That's what sin does. It's our way of rejecting God himself. I don't want to be with you. I don't want anything to do with your good plans or good desires. We scoff at his holiness. We pervert his love. We deny his reality as creator. We suppress or spurn his authority, we kick him in the shins and run the other way. And in hell, that vitriol goes to a higher key. People in hell still hiss and blame God for everything that they think is his fault. That desire never changes. And so hell lasts forever. But there's a third reason Jesus tells us about hell, and that is so we will more grasp the immeasurable height and depth of God's love for us when he sent his son Jesus to take hell on himself at the cross. See, when Jesus went to the cross, it shows us how holy and just God is. It also shows us how horrible our sin is, but it more fully shows us how much God loves us, how much he loves humans that Jesus would take that on us. So if you object to hell, 
I ask you to hear Jesus. If this morning you're thinking, well, surely God will overlook our sin and forgive everyone, right? A few years ago at our church, we had international students visiting, and after church, a practice I often had is I would take questions anyone might have about the sermon, or we we would discuss it further, which I always loved doing. And one day, I was speaking with one of the international students from Japan, and we were just collegially talking, and I asked her, what is it about the gospel that has been hardest for you to accept? What is the highest hurdle that you're not ready to jump in order to receive the gospel? And she said, well, here's the hardest part for me. I don't understand how God could forgive anyone. Shouldn't crime have consequences? Shouldn't evil have punishment? And I smiled and said to her, you don't know how refreshing it is to talk to someone who finds that to be the hardest hurdle. (laughs) Someone from Eastern cultures cannot imagine how God could forgive anyone because we've done wrong. But someone from Western cultures, Americans, We can't imagine how God wouldn't forgive everyone and simply overlook evil because our cultural air that we breathe is so different. See, the real question is, why would God forgive anyone? How would anyone who's rejected God find any relief for kicking him in the shins and running the other way? What hope could there possibly be? The Bible gives a staggering answer when it says that God will place his sin on his, our sin on his own son. You see, sin is serious, but I wonder if in our culture we even have a category for that anymore. Ephesians 5 says, you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous or an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 9 says, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived is the next phrase. Meaning that it has always been deceptively easy to think that you can sin with impunity and still end up in the kingdom of God. So apparently the less than 1% of Americans that think hell is even a possibility are in the same line of thought that this text warns us of. Now Jesus finishes that first parable by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hear if Jesus is warning you so that you can escape the wrath to come and be received in the kingdom of God. But even though he is so clear about the future destination of everyone, it's so easy to miss what Jesus is saying. And that's why he now has parables in the middle about how easy it is to overlook the kingdom of God. And this is now parable set two. The reason the kingdom of heaven is so easy to miss. Look in verse 31. Jesus put another parable before them. And again, still talking about the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, or it was in that day and in that culture. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. It's a simple point. The mustard seed seems insignificant, but then it has massive, extensive growth. Now, this has actually happened historically. Rodney Stark wrote a book called The Rise of Christianity, and in the book he explains that in 99 AD, there were only 7,500 Christians in the whole world 
And by 312 AD, when Constantine publicly converted to Christianity, there were millions. Now surely, we need to differentiate between true Christianity and false Christianity, and Constantine is maybe a flashpoint for that. But in any, in any evaluation today, there are millions and millions of Christians when there was once a very small amount. But Jesus is not simply talking about something that happens historically, but a principle that recurs. Look now in verse 33. It's not just that the number of Christians would grow, but that the gospel of the kingdom seems insignificant until it transforms. So look in verse 33. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. You see, the gospel is something that doesn't just add to its number. It's something that seems insignificant, but then it has extensive transformation and intensive internal change. It seems like it won't do much, but it can do more than anything else can. There's so many historical examples I could give, but many times we think, here's a people group and we need to make them better. Let's give them more education. Let's give them more money. Let's see if that makes things better. In reality, the only thing that has ever rescued any culture from the sinful tendencies it had is the gospel. The gospel was always the bellwether that would self-correct a culture when it started to do what was wrong. Did you know it's only in Western cultures that had the gospel that slavery was corrected? It never was in cultures without it. See, without that kind of truth, extensive growth and internal transformation can never happen, even if it takes a while and it starts small. But the kingdom of heaven is easy to undervalue and overlook. And so Jesus gives two more parables to make that point. Now look in verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. In the first century, precious commodities uh, were common because money did not accrue value in banks like it does now. And so it was fairly normal, actually, to hide something of capital somewhere where you could rediscover it later. So if you had gold or if you had silver, it was common for you to hide it. And because people died very easily and very frequently with life's uncertainties, it actually wasn't that abnormal to find buried treasure, which is where we have all our pirate stories from. So here in verse 44, Here's a treasure that's hidden in a field. Notice how verse 44 continues. Which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Verse 45, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Pearls today have devalued a lot, but in Jesus' day, pearls were the most valuable commodity you could have. Cleopatra had a single pearl that was valued at $4 billion of today's money. Verse 46, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Even if you don't know the value of pearls, you can still relate to the simple point of this parable. Sometimes, you realize you have something of much greater value than you could have ever imagined. And then the question is, what would I do to keep this? In 2013, David Gonzalez, who was at the time 35 years old, bought a house in Hoffman, Minnesota. And the house he bought cost him $10,100. He was in the garage digging out the drywall and he noticed some newspapers lining some comic books. 
And David Hoffman pulled out the comic book. His relatives went to touch it. He slapped their hands away because he had an inkling of what he had. And when he unrolled the newspaper, he had an action comic number one. It's the original Superman comic, which was valued that year at $2.16 million. Now this afternoon, instead of busting out the drywall in your garage, (laughs) consider the value of what Jesus is talking about here. You've seen Antique Roadshow. Somebody has some den that their aunt gave them that's made of metal, but it turns out it belonged to George Washington. You see what this passage is saying? You see, Jesus says everyone's going to either the eternal kingdom of God or they're going to the fiery furnace, and yet nearly everyone doesn't care. How is that possible? Because the kingdom of heaven's like a treasure that you just walk over. It's like a pearl that you don't realize how valuable it is. See, there's actually nothing greater that Jesus could tell you today than that you can have an eternal kingdom with God, and yet it probably seems like the least important news on your to-do list today. That's how badly we miss the value of the kingdom. The kingdom's like that thing that how could you miss it? And yet nearly everyone does. So let me give you four life, hopefully changing principles to draw from this morning's teaching. Here they are, they're not on the notes, so if you're a note taker, here are four for you to write down. Here's number one. The gospel of the kingdom is hidden. The gospel of the kingdom is hidden. Do you know this has always been the case? God, the Son, comes in human form. Isaiah 53 says he has no comeliness that we should desire him. There's nothing about him that says, wow, this guy's here. Let's all go listen to him. He never runs for governor. He never wins some prestigious medal or award. There's never some moment where he is the Pulitzer Prize winner for all of his teaching. Jesus teaches and goes around and basically most people don't care. You see, the divine son of God who designs the oceans and the stars and the Adams is born in a manger and his feet get tired and he gets hungry and he has to sleep just like the rest of us. But this morning, if you have ears to hear, then you like Charles Wesley will be able to sing, veiled in flesh, the Godhead, see. The kingdom is hidden. Number two, the gospel of the kingdom is incalculably valuable. Number two, it's incalculably valuable. See, the best news you could ever hear is that God became man and he was crucified and in apparent defeat, he bore your sin victoriously and rose from the grave. But that simple message that the Bible says a child can understand, Peter says angels long to look into. Tell me something else that your children can grasp that angels still can't quite grasp. There's nothing. It's so simple, it's easy to undervalue it and underappraise it. Don't underappraise it. Number three, the gospel of the kingdom is incomparably valuable. Not only is it beyond calculation, it's beyond comparison, meaning what would you not let go of to receive this? See, the man sold everything he had to buy the field because he knew what was in the field. And if you know what's in the field, what would you not give up for the field? 
But the gospel of the kingdom is something that we usually think is not very significant. Just ask the rich man if he thought Lazarus had the better kingdom. See, Jesus tells a true story about a rich man who was dressed in opulence and had a wonderful life every day. And then Lazarus, the beggar, who barely had the scraps, but when the rich man inherited his eternal fiery furnace, he would have done anything for the kingdom that he so overlooked. The kingdom is so easy to undervalue. But if you value it, you will leave anything for it. Let me say that again. If you value it, you will leave anything for it. Jesus is not asking for a little piece of you. That's what religion does. Come serve for a little bit, and then you'll get a little bit of God. That's not what Jesus says. He doesn't want a minor tweak. He doesn't want you to pledge a little bit of your time. He wants you to come into his kingdom so that he is your king. You radically give up any right to own or determine anything because you take him as king. See, this morning, if you enter the kingdom, you come not knowing all the answers, but you come knowing this. Jesus is the one treasure I can't live without. And that radically changes everything. That means God will ask far more from you than you think. But he will give far more to you than you can imagine. The kingdom is an entire change, and that requires unconditional surrender. If entering the kingdom is something that you don't wrestle with, it's probably because you don't understand it. Have you ever had a momentous decision you had to make in life? Should I move across the country? Should I marry this person? Should I change careers? What do you do before that decision? If you're like me, you pace until you wear out the carpet. (laughs) You talk to other people. You think about it. You wrestle it. That's what Jesus means when he says the kingdom comes by violence. Some of you don't understand the kingdom because you don't understand Christianity. It's not like a piece you add to the back of your pocket. It's totally losing yourself and gaining Christ and following him completely. The kingdom means you are never your own again, ever. You are now totally his. Let me try to make the point vividly to you. Some of you have parts in the Bible that you don't like, and so you ignore them, or you rewrite them to make them more culturally palatable to today, which means that you are still your own king, and that you've never actually received Christ as king. For Christ to be king means there are many moments where I say, I don't totally get this, but I trust you. I don't totally understand this, but my life is not mine anymore. Truth is not mine. Purpose is not mine. All that I have is yours, and I joyfully sold all I had so that I could have that treasure. So why would anyone give up everything? Because number four, the kingdom of God is exhilaratingly joyful. Do you remember when the man had joy? Did you see that in the passage? Not when he got the treasure when he sold everything he had. See, when you recognize rightly the treasure that is Jesus, there's joy even in the departure of anything else you once overestimated. Maybe some of you have been around people who say that they're Christians, but they're stoic and they're stuffy and they're sort of rough (laughs) and their happiness looks a little bit more like sadomasochism. I'm sorry you've known people like that. That's not what Christianity is. 
Christianity is joy in giving up anything you thought counted for something that immeasurably counts. This last month, I flew to Michigan where I was asked to be best man in a wedding. And best man is a fun spot to be in. You get to joke with the ring, and I did all that. (laughs) But then when you're standing there in the same spot, just a click over from where I often stand as the pastor, you can clearly see the faces of the bride and the groom. And there I watched the bride and the groom as they recited vows that they had written, and through misty-eyed joy, they proclaimed their delight to forsake all others so they could gain one another. That's what it means to give up all to gain what you could never lose. When you get what the kingdom is, you have joy as you're letting go of everything else so that you can gain the kingdom. No, so that you can gain the king, so that you can gain Christ. I want you to know that the kingdom is a message for anyone to enter, but nearly everyone will overlook it. So look down in verse 51. Have you understood these things? That's the question for you and I still. Now the disciples, by God's grace, say yes. But notice what he says to them because they understand. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who's been trained for the kingdom is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Let me just say it succinctly for time's sake. He's telling them, if you understand this, then you understand enough to be on mission. If you understand what the kingdom is, then you need to be out spreading the seed. Why would a week go by without you inviting someone else to enter the kingdom? Because you understand it. But if you don't understand it, do you know what will happen? You'll lose even what you had. In verse 12 of the first parable, the parable of the soils, Jesus says this, for the one who has more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And that principle always continues. So look now in verse 53. When Jesus finished these parables, he went away and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? 57, and they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and his own household. But notice now verse 58. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. What they had was taken away. And so it always is for those who refuse to receive the king through repentance and faith. The destiny of the world is either to be kept in the kingdom or condemned in the fiery furnace, and there is no alternate option. So this morning, realize that the gospel of the kingdom is hidden. Don't walk over it. The gospel of the kingdom is of incalculable value. Don't underappraise it. The gospel of the kingdom is incomparable. Give up anything for it. The gospel of the kingdom is exhilaratingly joyful. So feel joy while relinquishing everything else you thought mattered. Has Jesus become your treasure? The man was simply walking, and then by God's grace, he tripped over the most treasure 
the greatest treasure of all treasures this morning, perhaps you were simply driving and now God has caused you to stumble to hear the most important truth in the universe. Will you treasure it? Will you treasure Christ? Let us pray together. God, I thank you so much that there is a king who has come to offer a relationship with God permanently. A relationship that we can't deserve because of our sinfulness, but a relationship that he purchased by his life and death and resurrection. Lord, the man who found the treasure in the parable did not earn the treasure. He did not buy it, but he received it. We cannot earn our salvation. We cannot purchase it. We cannot buy it, but we can receive it because Jesus earned it for us. But Lord, in a world in which less than 1% of Americans think there is any eternity to fear, remind us of the clarity of Jesus as to the eternal destination of all. We either by grace through faith leave all to find Christ and enjoy his presence forever or in selfishness, we push away God and we push away others and we remain isolated in torment forever. Give us ears to hear. Do not let us walk over the gospel of the kingdom or underappraise its value or think that we already possess something that we can't let go of. Lord, bring people into your kingdom. And as you bring them in, remind us that you have made us scribes and teachers of the kingdom so that we can call others to enter it. In Christ's name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's ebcraleigh.com.